Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. If you'd be finding Jonah in your Old Testament, going to read some verses there at the top of Jonah, chapter 1, as we get ready to read and to study and to consider really just some vitally important truths from the Word of God for these next few minutes. As you're finding Jonah, chapter 1, let me just echo the welcome from earlier. What an outstanding number we have in attendance today, and what a delight it is to be counted as part of this good number. It is a beautiful day that the Lord has given us, and what better way to tell God thank you for this beautiful day and thank Him for all of His many blessings than by assembling with His people to give Him worship on His day, the first day of the week. I'm reading in Jonah, chapter 1. Hope you found it in Jonah, chapter 1. Read with me in verses 1, 2, and 3. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You know, I have often given Jonah a hard time. He is certainly not one of my favorite Bible characters. But I must tell you, I do relate to Jonah at least a little bit. Jonah was called upon to go and preach a sermon that he didn't want to preach. Jonah was summoned by God to go to Nineveh and to preach a message of destruction and a message as well of repentance to the sworn enemy of Israel, that would be the Assyrians. And while I'm certainly not trying to excuse Jonah's bad behavior here, fleeing and going in the opposite direction, as a preacher, I do sympathize with Jonah just a little bit. Because just like Jonah, there are certain sermons that I don't want to preach. That is absolutely true. You might not expect a preacher to say that, but there are sermons I don't want to preach. There are certain subjects, there are certain topics, there are certain passages in the Bible that I just do not enjoy having to preach on. For example, there are certain moral issues that I do not delight in having to preach on. Having to get up and preach on divorce, or homosexuality, or pornography, or preach last Sunday on alcohol. Those are hard and sometimes very unpleasant sermons to have to preach on. There are as well certain passages in the Bible that are just painful. They're painful for me to read, much less have to get up and preach about. I once preached a sermon on the topic of spiritual adultery. And I did that sermon from Ezekiel the 16th chapter. I don't know if you're familiar with Ezekiel the 16th chapter, but when I got done preaching that sermon, I felt like I needed to take a shower. It was bad. That's just an excruciating chapter of the Bible. It is not G-rated. And of course there are as well other biblical subjects that are difficult to preach on, not necessarily because the subjects are taboo, but because the subject matter calls upon us to to do hard things, to make difficult changes in our lives. You know, there's a reason I have yet to preach an entire sermon on the subject of patience, and that's because I am afraid of how I'm going to have to apply that sermon in my life. You see, there's lots of sermons that I just do not look forward to having to get up and stand before an audience and speak about. And I'd like to think that most preachers would probably concur with that. That there are just some sermons we don't like having to deliver. Do you know what? There is one sermon that for me 
just kind of stands head and shoulders above all of the rest. It is the sermon that I don't like to preach. In fact, I'm going to go on the record this morning as saying, it is the sermon I do not want to preach. Do you know what sermon I'm talking about? It is when the telephone rings, and the voice on the other line, in a very calm and very somber tone of voice, delivers to me some very, very bad news, and then they ask me if I would please be willing to preach the funeral for someone who is not a Christian. I tell you, you can stack all of those other kinds of sermons that I just mentioned a moment ago, stack them all up, but I really don't think it gets any worse than that. Here is this person who has lived their life in rebellion to God. They didn't ever think about God. In fact, maybe they didn't even believe in God. And now I am called upon to try and eulogize this person. To try and say something that's going to bring comfort and maybe a glimmer of hope to the family, those who are left behind. Or maybe even worse than that, maybe who's laying in that coffin is the body of someone who did believe in God. They maybe even came to church regularly. Maybe they were even kind of kind of born in the church. They've been coming to church ever since they were a kid. Went to Bible class all of their life. They know everything that the Bible has to say. They know God's plan of salvation. They know all of that stuff. They just never did anything about what they knew. And now here in these final moments, before their earthly remains return back to the dust of the ground from whence it was made, I have been asked to come and stand there at the head of that casket and to speak from the Word of God concerning this soul that has gone to meet the Lord utterly unprepared. Tell me now. Tell me now if you want to have to preach that sermon. I don't. I do not want to preach the sermon for someone who is lost. Now, let me give you the fine print this morning before I go any further. I want to say very clearly right here at the front, That the Lord is the righteous judge and He will do what is right. Genesis 18 verse 25 makes that point. I cannot preach people out of heaven into hell, nor can I preach people out of hell into heaven. God's going to be the one who's going to do the judging. God's going to be the one who's going to send people to those eternal destinations, not the fellow who preaches the funeral. Nothing that I say at a funeral is going to change anything about the eternal destiny of the one whose body is in that casket. And so please don't think this morning that I'm trying to assume the role of judge, jury, and executioner. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is about a soul. A soul who by all accounts has not been obedient to the gospel. By the very fruit of their lives, all of the evidence points to the fact that this person did not faithfully serve Jesus Christ. That as best we can tell... This is a soul that we believe is lost. I'll just make it very, very simple for you. This person is dead, and we believe that their soul has gone to the very worst fate possible in eternity without God. And so here we are. We're gathered here at the funeral home. Or maybe we're standing down at the graveside. And I have been asked to offer some kind of words of comfort, some kind of words of hope in what is arguably the bleakest possible circumstance. What am I supposed to say? 
I ask you, what am I supposed to say? Well, you might be thinking, I'm not, I'm not a preacher, Josh, so I don't want to think about that. Well, guess what? This morning, I'm going to make you think about that. I'm going to drag you into that pulpit at the funeral home. And I'm going to try and help you to understand in some small way the discomfort of delivering a sermon for someone who has died outside of Jesus Christ. And by the end of this lesson, what I hope you will realize is I hope you will realize just how much I do not want to have to preach your funeral if you depart this life in an unprepared condition. Three reasons this morning as to why that is so. Three reasons why I don't want to preach that funeral. And the first of those is this. I don't want to preach the funeral for someone who is lost because I am then forced to contemplate the reality of hell. No one, no one wants to think about hell. And especially at a funeral, no one wants to think about hell. The only time that people want to hear about hell is whenever that word is used as a four-letter curse word. In fact, hell has become somewhat of a joke in the minds of the culture at large. People say things all the time like, Oh, all the interesting people are going to be in hell. All the fun people are going to be in hell. Boy, it seems like it's going to be a big party down in hell. You see, no one wants to talk seriously about the reality that there is a place of eternal suffering away from God and that God is going to send people to that place. Do you know what? If you die in a lost condition and I am called upon to preach your funeral, I have to think about that. And if I am called upon to speak at your funeral, my job, by the very nature of my job, my job is to cause and force everyone else to think about that sobering reality. You want to know why that is? You want to know why that's my job? Because the Bible says over and over and over again, emphatically, specifically, explicitly and repeatedly, that there is such a place as hell, and God is really going to send real people to that place. Let's run a little bit of Bible. Look in Revelation 21 with me. In Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John is given a preview of some of the things that are on the other side of eternity. In Revelation chapter 21, I'm reading here in verse 8. In Revelation 21 and in verse 8, John says, But as for the cowardly, and the faithless, and the detestable, for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolater, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Right there. That's it. One verse. One verse is actually all that you would need. That verse and that verse alone would establish that hell is a reality. But the truth of the matter is, that is not the only verse. The Bible tells us again and again that hell is real. That it's not just some you know state of mind. It is not the, the suffering that we experience in this life. Hell is not being annihilated, just being completely destroyed and you're all over like Rover. No! The Bible tells us, for example, in 2 Peter 2. In 2 Peter 2, the Bible tells us that hell is a place of deep darkness. In 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 4. In 2 Peter 2 and in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the final judgment. 
This is a place of eternal darkness. There is no light in this place. And why? Because God is light. 1 John 1 verse 5. And since God is not there, there can be no light. It will be utter darkness. But not only that, the Bible says that hell will be a place of fire. I'm turning back to Revelation again. Look in Revelation 20. In Revelation chapter 20, there we are told in verse 15. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 talks about how the devil and how his angels, they are going to be put in that lake of fire and be tormented day and night forever. Drop down now to verse 15. Not only will the devil be there, but verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Can you imagine what kind of agony that will be? I believe there is no pain like burning. And even as I say that, I really actually believe that, that we as humans, we can tolerate just about any kind of pain as long as we know it's going to come to an end. As long as we know it's not going to go on forever and ever, it's going to come to an end. There's going to be a point where it's going to stop. But in hell... It won't stop. It will never end. The Bible says that it will be a continual torment and suffering without end. Hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. In Matthew the 25th chapter, this is at the conclusion of the parable of the talents. Jesus talks here about the wicked servant. What is the wicked servant going to hear? Matthew 25, look in verse 30. Jesus says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. People grinding their teeth, it hurts so bad. There is such agony there, such despair there, such misery. Jesus caps all of that teaching off in Matthew 25. Drop down to the very end of the chapter, verse 46. Jesus says, how long is this pain going to last? Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is clear. For every minute of heaven, there will be a minute of hell. And just as heaven never ends, so hell never ends. If you believe and if you accept that there is a reward, a place called heaven for those who are righteous, then you must also, just by default, you must accept and believe that there is a place of torture and punishment for the unrighteous. One follows the other just as night follows the day. And so... Here I am, standing here at the head of that casket, standing in front of this big crowd at the funeral home. And everybody in the funeral home is already thinking some of those long thoughts about eternity. The house of mourning does that to us, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 says. But unfortunately, we can't sit there and think all of those pleasant and happy thoughts about heaven because your life of disobedience and negligence and rebellion, it has forced us to contemplate the absolute horrors of hell. I don't want to preach that sermon. I don't want to get up and have to speak in that circumstance. I don't want to try and have to, you know, kind of dance around and skirt around what everybody in the room is already thinking. That you have stepped into eternity unprepared where the reality of hell is awaiting I don't want to preach that sermon. Which brings me right to this second reason that I don't want to preach that sermon. And that's because I will secondly, I will have to acknowledge that there will be no second chances for you. 
You know, what I would like to be able to say at that kind of a funeral is I would like to be able to say, well, the dearly departed, they didn't serve the Lord on this go-round. But hopefully the next try, hopefully they'll get their act together and hopefully they'll, hopefully they'll do the right thing on this next try. But I can't say that. Because the Bible plainly teaches that there are no second chances. That when you die, your eternal fate it is sealed. It is shut. The place for us to be reading here is in Luke the 16th chapter. Would you find Luke chapter 16? Because what we have here is we have a fella who experienced the truths that we're talking about here in a very personal way. In Luke 16, I'm reading here about the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, read with me beginning in verse 19. In Luke 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. For Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? Now he is comforted here. You are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, there's plenty that could be said from Luke chapter 16. Lots that we could learn there. But I want to try to keep the main thing, the main thing. And what is the main thing here? I believe the main thing Jesus is driving home here is that when you die, your eternal fate, it's fixed. That you get what you get and there is no changing it. There is no second chance. None whatsoever. You see that really kind of everywhere in this text. But I think it's probably driven home maybe the loudest in verse 26 when Abraham says to that rich man, You are stuck where you are. You had your chance. But now you are where you are and that's where you're going to be. Abraham says there is this huge gulf, this giant chasm, and no one is coming from there over to here. You do not get another shot. You do not get a do-over. There are no second chances. And at a funeral, that is a painful truth to have to acknowledge. Because the fact of the matter is, everybody loves second chances. We all love second chances. We love stories about second chances. Think about the Chicago Cubs. The Chicago Cubs, the last time the Cubs won the World Series, George Washington was pitching and Thomas Jefferson was playing first base. It was like forever ago. It had been a long time. And so what happened was every year the Cubs would say, oh, just just give us another chance. 
Next year we'll be able to do it. Give us another shot. And we love. I mean, people who aren't even Cubs fans, people love the fact that the Cubs last October, they finally did it. They finally cashed in on that second chance and they were champions. We love that kind of thing. We love stories in the news as well. Where a judge maybe says to some really bad guy who did a really bad thing, he says, you know what, I'm going to give you one more chance. So the guy gets out. You know what? He straightens his life up. He does better. He gets his act together. He's a productive and and, and healthy citizen in the community in which he lives. We love that kind of thing. We love that kind of redemption story. Somebody cashing in on a second chance. And you know what? God loves second chances too. He does. God loves second chances. And so God gives people second chances again and again and again in this life. Here, people get many opportunities to repent. And that is because, let's get 1 Timothy chapter 2 on the board here. That's because God doesn't want anybody to be lost. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, sure wouldn't want anybody to leave here this morning with the impression that God somehow wants people to go to hell. He's just trying to keep people out of heaven. No! 1 Timothy chapter 2, look in verse 4. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, God our Savior, He desires... All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. That is God's greatest longing and desire for you. And so you see, in this life, God makes it His mission. I think God just kind of sees it as His job every day. To give people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear the gospel, to repent and turn to Him, to render obedience to the gospel. And in fact, we see all throughout the Bible, we see examples of that again and again and again. How many second chances? How many second chances do you think Paul got before he finally became a Christian? I think that guy probably got a lot of second chances. Or what about the reference that we find in John chapter 7 and verse 5 to Jesus' very own family, his own flesh and blood, that even his brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was out of his mind. Yet by the time we get to Acts chapter 1... Those guys are believers. James, the brother of Jesus, and others, they believe. We love that kind of thing. When someone gets a second chance and they finally come around, we want people to have second chances. But when you die, when you find yourself in the back of a hearse in a box, when you die, that's it. There are no more second chances. And in fact, that could not be any more clearer than by looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. In Hebrews the ninth chapter and in verse 27, I want you to hear the finality to these words. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, the writer says there, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. So here I am. Standing next to that casket. And you are inside, or at least your earthly vessel is inside that box. And oh, how I wish I could comfort everyone's hearts with the prospect of you receiving a second chance. The prospect of you getting a second chance to make your life right. A second chance to to hear the gospel again. A second chance to repent of your sins, turn away from sin, and turn to God. A second chance to confess Jesus as God's Son. A second chance to be buried with Christ in baptism. A second chance to live faithfully for the Lord. 
But I can't. Because there is no way I can deny the cold, hard reality of Hebrews 9.27 that when you die, no more second chances. God's long-suffering for you will have come to an end. I don't want to have to preach that sermon. I don't want to have to preach that sermon knowing that you are lost and knowing that there is nothing that can be done about it. Which leads right into this third and final reason that I don't want to preach that sermon. And that is because I painfully have to recognize that it's your own fault. You know, we live in a culture of blame. It's just all around us. People in our society today, they are much quicker to point the finger at somebody else than they are to take a good long look at the man or the woman in the mirror. And you know, people do all that blame shifting today, and I think a lot of times people get away with that. And you may be able to get away with some of that blame shifting in the here and the now, but that isn't going to fly in eternity. Because if you die in a lost condition, if you die without obeying the gospel, if you die and you go to hell, no one is to blame but yourself. You did it. You cannot point the finger at somebody else. I'll tell you what, my parents, my parents, if they hadn't been pressuring me all those years to be a Christian, I'll tell you what, maybe I would have. Or you know what, my friends, my friends, if they hadn't introduced me to alcohol or to pot or to some other kind of drug, then I wouldn't have went down that dark and dangerous path of destruction. Or you know what, my teachers, my professors, if they hadn't planted those seeds of doubt in my mind about, about evolution or the Big Bang or about the veracity of the Word of God, then you know, maybe I never would have questioned the existence of God. Maybe I never would have questioned the reliability of Scripture. This person, that person. No! None of that! You did it! You chose your fate. You chose your own path. Look in Matthew the 7th chapter, please. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaks of this very thing. In Matthew chapter 7, I'm reading in verses 13 and 14. In Matthew 7 and verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Do you see the emphasis in those verses on choosing? Do you see the emphasis there on your choice in the matter? That you are in charge of your own spiritual path. In fact, I'll give you another illustration of that. Look in Mark. In Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, look at what Jesus says in verse 43. In Mark 9 verse 43, Jesus says, If your right hand causes you to sin... Well, you're not just a helpless victim and you can't do anything about that. No, Jesus says you can do something about that. He says, cut it off. Mark 9, verse 43. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus uses strong language, strong words to say that we can take measures in our own lives to guard ourselves, to protect ourselves, and to do what is right. 
And what all of these passages emphasize is our decision. Our choice. Our free will choice to do what we want to do. We can either come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and be healed by His mercy and His grace. Or we can choose to follow our own path. To ignore the Lord and His warnings and to do what we want to do. It is our choice. Consequently then, and you can just do the math here, if you are lost, if you go to hell, if you suffer for all eternity, that's your fault. It is your own fault. In fact, every person who finds themselves in hellfire, they will be there because they trod the road of their own bad decisions. And so here we are. We're at the graveside now. And it is my job to eulogize you in some way. Maybe in all of that talking, maybe I'll be able to say something good about you. I hope I'll be able to say something good about you. Maybe I'll be able to tell a few little pleasant anecdotes of conversations we've had. Maybe I'll be able to share a a funny story or two. Maybe I'll be able to talk about what a what a good person you were, a nice person you were, like in your in your family relationships or in your job, and you know, just all of these kinds of things. And you know what? That's that's all well and good. It's nice to reflect on that stuff. But you know what? When it then comes to the single most important decision that a person could ever make, the decision to follow Jesus Christ, there's nothing I can say. I have nothing to say on your account. And why? Because you chose not to follow Jesus. You instead chose to remain behind the safety of that pew when the invitation song was being sung. Sunday after Wednesday after Sunday after Wednesday. You chose stubbornness and selfishness and rebellion. You chose those passing pleasures of sin for a season. And guess what? You are now receiving its wages. And as we all gather around those earthly remains in that cemetery, our hearts are bitter with the knowledge that God did everything. God did everything. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us all. God did everything to try and bring you home to Him, but you spurned that offer. You spurned that invitation to come and live with Him eternally, and you are now suffering the consequence of your sin. It's your own fault. And in that moment, there's nothing I'm going to be able to say to make the sting of that any less painful for all the loved ones that you leave behind. And there surely is nothing I can say to somehow shift the blame away from your action or maybe even away from your inaction. Can you see now? Can you see now why I don't want to preach that sermon? Let me make something very, very clear this morning. In all of the things that we've talked about, all the things that I've said, I hope you understand this isn't about the preacher. I hope you get that. The appeal for you to come to Jesus and to be saved, the appeal to you is not do that so the preacher doesn't have to preach a really difficult sermon when you're in the casket. 
That's not the reason we are imploring you to be saved. That's In fact, that's really not even what this lesson is about at all. The appeal to you this morning is for you to consider soberly your soul's condition. And then for you to make whatever changes are necessary in your life. Whether that means acting upon those first principles in order to become a Christian. Or maybe that means coming back to the Lord. If you are away from Him, come back to Him in repentance and prayer. We're encouraging you, imploring you to do that so that you can be right with God. And the reason we make that appeal this morning, and the reason we make that appeal every time that we assemble in this place, is because one of these days, you are going to die. If the Lord should tarry, you're going to be in that box. Or you're going to be in the urn or whatever vessel they put your remains in. And when that day comes, there's a pretty good chance that your family and your friends who you leave behind, they're going to want to remember you. They're going to want to memorialize you. And there's a very good chance that they may even ask a preacher to come and to say a few words on that occasion. What I'm asking you right now is, what words will the preacher say about you? Will the preacher be able to quote from the 116th Psalm where the psalmist says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. What a beautiful thought that is. What a comforting passage that is. Or, will you have lived your life in such a way that maybe the more appropriate passage would be Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11? Where the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If today happens to be the day that you go and meet the Lord, which of those verses would best describe you right now? It is a dark and awful thing to try and contemplate an eternity without God. I do not like this sermon I do not want to preach this sermon. But you know what? This sermon needs to be preached. Because there are people in this audience this morning who I know are not prepared for that. Hell is real. And when you die, there will be no second chances. And if you are lost, and if you are sent to hell, there's no one to blame but yourself. And so... We are asking you. We're imploring you. We are with the Lord begging you to not risk another minute of your life. Seize upon this moment right now to take decisive action in getting yourself prepared, getting your soul prepared for eternity. We are singing this song to your encouragement. Prepare to meet your God. You can do that right now by making your way to the front while we stand and while we sing.